Thank you, Julie, and, and thank you, choir, for such a beautiful anthem earlier. You know, we read, to, we sang together, Come All Christians Be Committed, hymn number 578. And let me just read that last verse as we begin to study God's word this morning. Come in praise and adoration, all who on Christ's name believe. That's what we're doing here. We're gathered here together. We worship him with consecration, grace, and love you will receive. For his grace, for his grace give him the glory, for the spirit and the word. And repeat the gospel story until all his name have heard. We're repeating the gospel story, aren't we? We're reading the story of God and we re recount that each and every week gathered here. And so we're gathering here today and we're studying this time, this season, in the book of Mark, we are going through the story of Jesus. Now, if you've not been with us, um, let me recap just a few things about Mark. First of all, Mark was written by this guy who's referred to in the book of Acts as John Mark. And he recalls the story of Jesus. Now we know that Mark is with Peter toward the end of Peter's life in Rome. And very likely he is hearing Peter, Peter's version of the story. And so in many ways as we read the Gospel of Mark, we're reading Peter's account of the life and death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. You might remember the story began in chapter 1 of Mark with Jesus' baptism, really with John the Baptist in the wilderness. John the Baptist is Isaiah's, um, the, the, the fulfillment of Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. And then Jesus comes to John, he's baptized, he retreats to the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one. Two weeks ago we discussed Jesus calling his disciples and really beginning his ministry. Last week we followed Jesus into the synagogue into this town called, in this town called Capernaum. And as Jesus taught, the people recognized that he taught with authority. Before they could let it sink in, this man with an impure spirit calls out and Jesus cast out the impure spirit. And the impure spirit identifies who Jesus is. Now we left off in Mark chapter 1 verse 27. Or we left off in Mark chapter 1 verse 28, but I'll read verse 27. It says, the people were also amazed. They asked each other, what is this? A new teaching. And with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. And then in verse 28, news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So this brings us to our text today. Let me invite you to find a Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We're picking up the story today in verse 29. Jesus is moving around. He's doing incredible things. He's preaching and teaching. News about him is spreading throughout the region. Let's look together at today's passage again. Let me encourage you, uh, leave your Bibles open and we'll walk through this passage together. Mark chapter 1, and one thing that scholars note about this is that Mark is kind of moving from scene to scene. Some scholars feel that maybe all of these stories here in this first part of Mark are happening even on the same day, at least on the Sabbath here when we read of the Sabbath, all of this is happening. And you see this phrase in Mark chapter 1, just then, just then, just then, five times we see that phrase. And so Mark is moving from one story to the next. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense that all of this is kind of happening one thing after another. The, the pace is fast. And so maybe by the time we get to verse 29, maybe it's still the Sabbath day. And all the things that we talked about last week, we're talking about the same day. We read in verse 29, beginning in uh, 
beginning in verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Mark's just kind of matter-of-fact, isn't he? Just talking about things happening one after another. And remember, Peter's the one that's behind these words, and he's telling the story. So this is a personal story to him. It's his mother-in-law, right? They're going to his house. And they arrive at the house, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And Jesus simply takes her by the hand. Her fever leaves her, and then she's up waiting on them, kind of doing what she would normally do. As I was doing research for this sermon, I came across an article that speaks of Peter's house in Capernaum. Uh, they think they know where that house is. Uh, they, they've, uh, this is a house that you could go to and see. Um, many believe that this is the house where many Christians met after Jesus' life and death and resurrection all the way up until the second century. And they believe that it's a place where perhaps Jesus even lived while he was in Capernaum. You know, they say this is Peter's house here, but there's no place, not in Scripture nor in tradition, where they say this is Jesus' house. Uh, we, don't, we don't believe that he had a home. And so likely Jesus is living even with Peter and Simon here in this home. And so they go back to their place of rest. You know, when you go home, that's the place that you go to rest, right? To relax, to kind of get away from everybody. And Peter's mother is sick, or mother-in-law is sick. And Jesus heals her. But look at what happens next, verse 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. Now you might be saying, after sunset? You know, isn't that when things quiet down? You go home for the evening, it's been a busy day, all these things have happened to Jesus. And after sunset, you think he could just kick back and relax. But remember, what day is it? It's the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, in Jewish thought, at sunset, the Sabbath is over. So the Sabbath goes from sunset to sunset. And so after sun sets, people are like, oh, we can work again. We can move about. We can get out. And what do they do? They go to where Jesus is and they start asking him, will you heal my brother? Right? Will you heal my mother? I've got this problem. And they're all showing up on Jesus's doorstep. You could imagine the scene. Look at verse 33. What does it say? The whole town gathered at the door. <laughs> I don't know about the whole town, right? That's a lot of people. It certainly seemed like the whole town was at the door. Everybody's lining up to be healed. Now verse 34 is an intriguing verse. Look at what it says. It says, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. I think that's an interesting verse there. If you've been reading along with me in the first chapter of Mark, you know that demons have played an important role. Evil has played an important role in the story so far. Not only has Jesus gone into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one, but these demons or these impure pure spirits keep showing up. We saw in the previous section with the man in the synagogue, the demon, the impure spirit, identifies Jesus. He tells everybody who Jesus is. But here, Jesus doesn't want them to speak. <laughs> he doesn't want them to identify him. He doesn't want them to broadcast his identity to all the people. 
Now that's interesting, isn't it? We often think that we should broadcast who Jesus is to everybody. And we think, why does Jesus not want them to speak? Why does he not want them to say that he is the Son of God? He doesn't want everybody to know that yet, it seems. And scholars have called this the messianic secret in Mark. And there's a number of times that Jesus will heal, Jesus will do a miracle, Jesus will do something profound, and then he'll say to people, don't tell anybody. Have you ever noticed that in scripture? And have you ever wondered, why does he say that? Why doesn't Jesus want people to know? I, I think that as we get into this, we'll realize it's more strategy at this point, right? Because when people know who Jesus is, he's going to, word's going to spread. Right? People are going to want to come to him more. More people are going to find out. And Jesus isn't quite ready for the crowd at this point in his ministry. Look at verse 35. Look what it says. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. How late do you think Jesus was up that night? We don't know, do we? They show up at sunset. He's got lots of work to do, lots of people. The whole town's gathered at the door, right? Did he, did he say, sorry, this is the last one, or did he just keep healing? Likely he healed until late in the evening, but not long before sunrise. In one translation, I like the one translation translates this, in the middle of the night, Jesus got up and went off to this place. He gets up before sunset. He gets up before the people come back to the house to be healed And he goes to a solitary place. I think that's fascinating that Jesus goes to a solitary place. When you read about prayer in the book of Mark, you find Jesus praying. And every time Jesus is praying, he's in a solitary place praying. It's as if he wants to get away from the crowds. As if he knows that the crowds kind of suck the energy out of him. He has to recharge as he goes to this solitary place. And then look at what it says in verse 36. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they find him, look at what it says. When they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. (laughs) No doubt, right? Jesus, there's more healing to be done. Jesus, the crowds are growing We We kind of set up shop for you to do healing. And you weren't here when we woke up. Come back. Keep doing what you are doing. I find it interesting that that word look for or seek in the gospel of Mark, the Greek word there is not a positive word. And we think to seek something is a good thing, right? But this word in Mark, every time it's used, it's used in a negative sense. The first two times are used in the context of obstructing the ministry or the work of Jesus. The next two times they refer to disbelief or faithfulness, faithlessness. The religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus so they are seeking him. Again, this is a negative word that's used here. One scholar puts it this way. Seeking connotes an attempt to determine and control rather than to submit and follow. Clamoring crowds are not a sign of success. Here, as elsewhere in Mark, enthusiasm is not to be confused with faith. Indeed, it can oppose faith. This seems to be what's happening here. 
Rather than, let Jesus, rather than letting Jesus do what he needs to do, connect with the Father, the disciples are demanding that he come back and heal more. They're trying to impose their agenda on Jesus rather than allowing Jesus to set the pace and the plan. How often do we do this? How often are we guilty of this sort of behavior? We think that God should, you name the, you name the, you fill in the blank there, right? God should do this or God should do that. Why isn't God doing this? We often ask. But a more appropriate posture would be to sit back and let Jesus lead. Let Jesus decide what's next. The same scholar I just quoted describes this dynamic. I love how he puts it. The disciples evidently want Jesus to capitalize on his notoriety as a miracle worker. Already on the first day of public ministry, according to Mark, Jesus' mission is endangered and by those closest to him. You know, we must be careful not to endanger the mission of God, right? Even today we run the risk of getting ahead of Jesus. Yet Jesus' response is patient here. Look at what he says in verse 38. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I, I have come. So Jesus directs the disciples away from their plans and he clearly states his plan. He says, this is why I've come. So he can preach. Now the word preach, is the, the Greek word there means to proclaim, right? And, as, uh, and we, we see that word twice in this passage in verse 38 and 39. It's a key word that defines what Jesus has come to do. We see this often. Jesus says, I've come to proclaim, to preach. Now let's just land on this dynamic for just a moment. Jesus is commanding silence on the one hand, and yet he is proclaiming on the other hand. How, how do those two things go together? How can they live together? I think that this tension here in the text is what we need to learn from this passage. On the one hand, Jesus is careful to not let people run away with their own expectations and plans and purpose for ministry. The disciples on more than one occasion seem to be trying to capitalize on the crowds. Let's expand our ministry. Let's attract more people, they say. Let's reach more people. Let's get bigger. Let's get larger. But strangely, Jesus is not interested in the crowds. He often leaves the crowds. He's uncomfortable with the popularity. Jesus seems to know the natural progression of crowds, right? And he knows the natural progression of crowds will be in opposition to God's plan. Instead, Jesus has come to proclaim a kingdom that is not of this world, that will stand in contrast, in fact, to the values of this world. And he will proclaim, he will preach a message of repentance, of turning away from sin and to God. And so we read in verse 39, So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. There's that word preach again there. That's why Jesus came, to preach, to proclaim. So he came to proclaim a message that is quite different from the popular, trendy values of the world. He also came to drive out demons, to come head to head with the evil forces in the world and expel their work. So what can this passage teach us about what it means to follow Jesus? I think there's several layers to this passage, but a key application seems to be this whole dynamic. If, if we had the crowds, 
versus Jesus. We have popularity versus a kingdom of God that is in contrast to the kingdom of the world. Now the disciples and the crowd's intentions for Jesus are healing, popularity, and fame. And Jesus reminds them that that's not his purpose. That's not why he came. And so Jesus doesn't go back to the house and heal more people. Instead, he goes to another town and begins to proclaim. If we admit it, we're a lot like the disciples, aren't we? We want to spread the message of Jesus in ways that are attractive, in ways that are about meeting the needs and the desires of the people. The hope is to attract more people, to make the message of Jesus one that's easy to hear, popular, one that is pleasing. You know, many churches in our world today have taken this approach, but we must be careful to not fall into this mode. Like Jesus, we need to proclaim God's word, and it will not always be easy to hear. It will often not be popular, and sometimes it will not attract people. We must be careful not to engineer Jesus' message in this sort of way. Rather, we should learn the posture of listening to Jesus, obeying his word, and submitting ourselves to it. You know, we pray every week the Lord's Prayer, don't we? We sang it today. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Then what? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, your will, God, not mine. And in doing so, we are proclaiming this gospel. How might God be speaking to us today? Would you pray with me? God, we're grateful for this passage, Lord, this tension of crowds versus solitude. This tension of popularity versus proclaiming the kingdom of God. Through this passage, God, we learn that the disciples have their own agenda and it is not Jesus' agenda. Jesus gently leads them to the place where he wants them to be. God, we pray that you would open our hearts, that we would sense your mission in our world, and that we would join you in it. That we would not get ahead of you doing what we think we need to do, but rather we would sit back and wait and have a posture of trust and dependence on your leading. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.